everybody, Dave Hodges here, host of The Common Sense Show. Thanks for tuning in to this segment. We have a really special guest for you. It's a real treat. Uh, and the subject is not pleasant, but the information that we're going to get from our guest, John Guindolo, is critical. And I mean absolutely critical, given what's going on between Iran and the United States. Tensions are heightened. Uh, we're kind of in no man's land here, and John is a resident expert. We'll talk about his background in a minute. But first, I need to let you know that we're brought to you by a couple of groups. One is our storable food company, MPS. They are fantastic. And in this day and age, hey, look, the grid could get attacked. Uh, Just-in-time deliveries could be disrupted with the terrorist act. you got to make sure that you have the food, water, guns, gold, ammo, medicine, and tools. And we can help you with the food. We have a two-week emergency kit on sale for almost half off. Fantastic deal. Restaurant quality. Go to preparewithdave.com. That's preparewithdave.com. Also, we're brought to you by my solar bank. And I'll tell you, this is such a fantastic organization. I have two of these. I carry them around with me. And I plug in my phone. And I have charging wherever I'm at because it's solar powered. And it comes with all kinds of cool accessories too, like a compass. And it can do all kinds of neat things. And you can go to patriotsolarbank.com. The link is also on our website. All right, John Guandola is, uh, i tell you, his background, I was telling him as we were going on here, his, his background reads like a book. It's a novel. He's the president and founder of Understanding the Threat, UTT for short, the only organization in America that provides tools to leaders, police, and citizens to identify and dismantle jihadi terrorist networks in their local communities. He's a former FBI agent, uh, counterterrorism division. Currently, John advises governments and others on matters related to national security, specifically the threat from global Islamic movements. He actively briefs and teaches members of Congress, senior military officials, and I'm sure you've seen him all over the media. I've seen him a number of times, very, very impressive background, military background. He spent his life in service to his country, he was an army ranger, parachutist. We don't have time to go into all of it. But uh, his awards are longer than my arm. And so, John, with great honor, I want to welcome you to the Common Sense Show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, very grateful to be here. Well, we're, we're looking really, boy, is this a timely interview or what, given what's going on? But we're looking at uh, events unfolding between ourselves and Iran. So if you were sitting with the president right now, what would you be telling President Trump? Well, first thing I would explain or hope to share with him is that we need, in, a, in, a, in order to take any action, you have to understand where that action fits into a strategy. Currently, the United States does not have a strategy to deal with the global Islamic movement because we've never identified the threat since 9-11. Uh, and none of the administrations have. So this isn't, you can't understand what Iran is doing unless you understand what Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia are doing, uh, and the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood, because they're all communicating. Specifically, Turkey, uh, Iran, Qatar, talking directly with the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood. So the, the actions that we take um, have to be understood in that framework of the, the global network, understanding what the network is here, how it operates, uh, but they have to be obliterated. This threat has to be destroyed. We have to win. But just taking out Iran militarily or financially or however we do it 
isn't enough. You have to deal with uh, Saudi Arabia. You have to deal with Turkey. You have to deal with Qatar. Most importantly, you have to do with the very significant network, jihadi network here in the United States. How did that jihadi network here become so prominent? Uh, Mostly by the way that they actually operate. So in other words, um, if you go back to the, you know, the 1100s or the 1500s or the 1600s or even the 1700s here in the United States, uh, when uh, Muslim states were capturing U.S. ships and kidnapping U.S. people, the history uh, of Islam was military conquest uh, over the non-Muslim world. And so if you lived in a non-Muslim area and you were uh, deluded that uh, Islam was friendly to you, uh, well, that was pretty quickly... Uh, your your understanding was pretty quickly changed when they came in and uh, slaughtered people, s- took your your sons and daughters uh, and wives uh, out and made them slaves. So that was pretty easy to see. The difference is in the in the 20th century uh, when they came to the United States in the 1960s, established the network here. They did it primarily wearing suits and portraying themselves to be pro-American, friendly, and they have insinuated themselves into all levels of our society, and we have been treating them, uh, certainly since 9-11, but I'd say since the the 60s, as if they were, uh, you know, like everyone else. And in fact, they have a very specific agenda, which they tell us. They put it on their websites. We've found their documents and evidence uh, overseas and here in the United States. Uh, and you can go to any mosque bookstore and buy a book of Islamic law, and it tells you what the purpose of Islam is. And here in Dallas, uh, where you are, whether we're talking about from California to Connecticut, if you just look at what they teach 11, 12-year-olds in U.S. Islamic schools, uh, they're teaching that same thing. And that is that the purpose of Islam is to establish an Islamic state uh, under Islamic law, Sharia, that to wage war against the non-Muslims is the purpose of Islam. And so until you, we understand that, uh, it's going to be very difficult to put together a coherent strategy. See, I, I have felt that too. Sharia law, in its purest sense, does not seem to allow for coexistence with other beliefs like Christianity. Uh, that's right. Uh, not in the way that you and I understand the word coexistence, uh, meaning co-equals, that you exist together as co-equals. Uh, is Islam specifically defines non-Muslims, uh, the Quran says it, as the worst of all creatures. And under the law, you can never, never have equal status. The law allows for non-Muslims must uh, convert to Islam or be killed. Mm-hmm. Unless you are a Jew, Christian, or Zoroastrian, and then you have that third bonus choice, which is you can convert you can submit to Islamic law and pay the non-Muslim poll tax and live with lesser rights. Uh, and you have to do things like wear identifying things on your clothing to identify you as a non-Muslim, um, which we're seeing right now in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the areas that were controlled by Al-Qaeda and ISIS. We saw this kind of behavior uh, and we'll certainly see it as the caliphate reemerges under Turkey. Um, but that, that's what it is. And that, that's all there is. So no, there is no co-equal coexistence in Islam. 
And for these Sharia-compliant people living in this country, I would assume the Constitution of the United States means nothing to them as a final law. Right. That's a good question. And the way you asked it, I thought was good. You, the, the, when a lot of people ask, and I've been asked this hundreds of times, so are you saying that everyone, uh, every Muslim is a, is a threat to me and my family because I'm not buying it? I'm actually not saying that. There are people who self-identify as Muslim who don't want to live under Sharia. They don't understand Sharia. They don't know what Sharia is. But let me be clear. Someone who identifies themselves as a Muslim who doesn't understand Islam and Sharia does not constitute a different version of Islam. Sharia, yeah. yeah, Sharia is the is the line of demarcation. Somebody who is Sharia adherent is a threat to the community and an enemy of liberty. That's the way it is. Because to be Sharia adherent is to be a jihadi. That's the definition in Islam, not by me, of a jihadi. Someone who is Sharia adherent. Now, all Muslims are commanded in Islam to be Sharia adherent, but that doesn't mean that every human being who grows up in a Muslim family wants to be or is Sharia adherent, but it is a requirement under the penalty of death that they do that. And let me make sure I understand that last statement. Under the penalty of death, you're saying that all Muslims are required to be Sharia or they get put to death? Yeah, because Sharia is Allah's divine law. Mm-hmm. It comes from Allah in his Quran and from the perfect example of a man, Muhammad. And Muhammad, you know, tortured people, uh, you know, said we have to wage war until Islam is the law of the land. Uh, he, you know, condoned uh he, he himself participated in beheading up to 900 Jews after the Battle of the Trench. He married a six-year-old and consummated the relationship when she was nine. He said, you know, uh, war is deceit, uh, that uh, the, you, it's a, it, Islamic law says it's obligatory to lie to non-Muslims to advance Islam. So all these things are part of Islam. Um, so, yes, to be a Muslim, according to Islam, is to, of course, follow Allah's divine law. That is, <laughs> it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. And here, here's where my stumbling point is with this. I watched the president's speech in the aftermath of the Iranian attack the day before, and the president left the door open for conciliation, negotiation. But if you're dealing with a philosophy that's this extremist, it's my way or the grave, how do you negotiate with people like this? Uh, you, you don't. And that's the point. Uh, we can, we can, there should be no negotiations. Now, if he wants to do negotiations to pacify uh, some portion of the, you know, he thinks it's a, a tactic, but he internally understands that we're going to crush them. Well, that, that's one thing. Um, but no, there is no negotiating uh, with this leadership uh, of Iran, just like uh, there's no real negotiating with any Sharia adherent uh, leader of any Islamic country. I mean, let's not forget the entire Muslim world is a party to the Organization of Islamic Conference, which is the largest voting bloc in the UN, 57 member states. It's every Muslim leader in the world of every Muslim country uh, in the world. And they're party to the Cairo Declaration, which was served officially in 1993 to the United Nations, and it says we, the heads of state, 
of every Muslim nation on the planet only view relations with the non-Muslim world through the lens of Sharia, which requires war against the non-Muslim world until Sharia is the law of the land. So how do you get around that? You don't. You have to recognize first, that's the starting point. So somebody can say, hey, John Guandolo, I disagree with your approach, and I would say, that's cool. So long as you understand the problem, we can disagree on the solution all day. But you can't come to the table and tell me uh, the vast majority of Muslims don't adhere to the very thing that Islam requires them to adhere to, or to say that ISIS and Al-Qaeda pervert Islam. No, they're actually perfecting Islam. They're doing exactly what Islam commands. But if you come to the table and say, I get all that, but I disagree with your approach, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. That's just two people having a reasonable disagreement. It is not a reasonable disagreement if you don't understand or somebody doesn't understand the basic tenets of Islam. Yeah, and I hear exactly what you're saying. So here's what I want to fix in my mind. I'm wondering if change from their side is possible, and I'm looking at it historically. In other words, are we dealing with a recent rash of extreme radicalism, or has Islam always been this way and Sharia has been a part of it? Um, Well, Sharia is Allah's divine law. That's their God, and that comes from the Quran, and there's one Quran, and it comes from the example of the Prophet Muhammad, and there's one Muhammad, and there is an authoritative... Uh, biography of Muhammad, the life of the prophet Muhammad, uh, Surat Rasulullah, and the Quran, every verse in the Quran has been legally defined in Islam. So there's no such thing as a Muslim who says, well, you know, this verse means this to me. To say that in Islam is a capital crime, actually. Mm -hmm. So in the tafsir, T-A-F-S-I-R, in the most authoritative tafsir, it defines every verse in the Quran. So there is not wiggle room. When it comes to the non-Muslim world, the definition of jihad, the requirements in the law of jihad, the obligation to establish an Islamic state, uh, the treatment of non-Muslims under the Islamic state, there is agreement, total agreement, uh, in the Islamic world on that. Where there are disagreements, they are either over things that have zero impact on us, or they're on matters that have that don't have to do with the non-Islamic world, the un-Islamic world. That makes perfect sense. So I'm, I'm looking at two variables here that I think are really paramount to consider. One, let's just assume that the isolationists get their way, just for the sake of argument, we're energy independent. We pull back from the Middle East, they have their little kingdom. But you got Russia involved because of the BRICS nation's relationship of the uh, gold for oil with Iran. How could Russia possibly deal with this as well? Because they're not run by Sharia. Well, right. I mean, uh, Russia, uh, certainly Putin uh, does not have any love loss, uh, you know, love for the, uh, the, the Muslims or the jihadis. But first and foremost, Russia will do what Russia needs to do to protect Russia and make sure it has what it's need. That has always been the way uh, Russia has operated, whether it was Russia or the Soviet Union. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. They will work with who they need to work with to get what they need to ensure Russia has what it needs to grow and move forward. 
Um, that so that's kind of the simple answer to your question. I hope that suffices. It, it not, does. But if I'm going to take it to a, a different level, John, I would say that the same inherent conflict between America and Iran should be present with the same inherent conflict with Russia and Iran. And I realize you're saying Russia is willing to kind of bend the rules a little more than America is on who they deal with. But I'm looking at this and I don't think that they can coexist for long periods of time. No, and they won't. I mean, uh, China and Russia both have a pretty hard line uh, towards what the Muslims are doing in their own country. Sure. But they will allow them, they'll work with them uh, and even train them and arm them uh, if if need be uh, in order to advance uh, their uh, agenda. Absolutely. Yeah, eventually. Could you see an alliance of the BRICS against America and her Western allies? Uh, With who? The BRIC nations. In other words, Iran, you know, Russia, China, India, so forth. Um, Not in the way maybe you're suggesting, like a formal alliance like that. I mean, obviously, Russia is working with Iran. Russia's. I mean, again, they will work with whoever they need to to get what what they need to get done to protect and and take care of uh, Russia. I think um, what we are seeing is China and Russia utilizing these entities to weaken the United States. And that is definitely happening. So working with them to weaken the United States for their own uh, benefit that is absolutely going on. There is definitely a uh, very clear alliance between Iran, Qatar, and um, Turkey, and that's uh, when we talk about we look at what's happened in the United States in the last four and a half days or so uh, across the world in the last four and a half days with regards to the United States and Iran. Um, if you just look at it in a vacuum and you don't take into account uh, what Turkey is actually doing, what Saudi Arabia, Qatar are doing, then then you're missing the whole game. Mm-hmm. And China and Russia will take advantage of these things and even coordinate and work with these folks uh, to benefit themselves and to weaken us, yes. Well, along those lines, and for a threat to America, we still have soldiers in Turkey and we have presumably nuclear weapons should we be concerned about Turkey then with regard to their relationship with Iran and the security of those forces? Absolutely. Uh, and Turkey is, uh, is an enemy of the United States. And the fact that we're still treating them like an ally is problematic, much like the way we treat uh, Saudi Arabia uh, as an ally is very problematic. So let me just, if I could, and if, if you want me to stop, just uh, tell me, but in just a couple minutes, let me break a couple things down. Okay, sure. So I mentioned, I mentioned Iran, uh, Turkey, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, which we can come back to Qatar. Qatar is a big player in the, the global jihadi movement, uh, or for those people talking in U.S. federal code terms, uh, terrorists, which is the legal term, although the terrorism only includes the violence or the conspiracy uh, to do violence as opposed to the jihad, which in Islam is total war. So they're using espionage, counterintelligence, propaganda, uh, influence operations, uh, economic warfare. All that is a part of what they're doing inside the United States, uh, and they do it very well. But So Saudi Arabia, 
was directly involved in 9-11. We know now from CIA and FBI reports, uh, as well as the fact that the uh, Saudi Arabian ambassador uh, in his personal checking account sent over $130,000 to Omar Bayoumi, who's a Saudi intelligence uh, agent uh, who was in all over the place, but in California, handling at least two of the 9-11 hijackers. We know that uh, Saudi ambassador to the United States, Bandar, same guy, uh, Bandar's private unlisted number for his chalet in Aspen, Colorado, was found in the address book of a senior al-Qaeda leader arrested in Pakistan in in, uh, uh, 2002, I think it was. I think it was Abu Zaybeda. Um, And um, there's a lot of other information. But Saudi Arabian, the government of Saudi Arabia was directly involved. We now know that at least two government agents for Saudi Arabia uh, at least a year before 9-11 ran dry runs from Phoenix to D.C. on aircraft trying to get into the cockpits uh, on behalf of the al-Qaeda operatives. So government officials, agents of the Saudi Arabian government, not people uh, affiliated with paid people, people inside the the ministry, different ministries in the Saudi government were actually operating in support of Al-Qaeda and 9-11. What have we done to Saudi Arabia besides kiss their behinds since 9-11? Fall over backwards. President Bush, President Obama, and uh, while I wouldn't say Mr. Trump, uh, he doesn't seem to kiss anybody's behind, but he is certainly publicly and uh, through policy showing that he's friendly with uh, Saudi Arabia. I think it's very dangerous. Um, they are not our ally. They're not our friend. Now, can we use them uh, to help us while recognizing? Yes. Again, we. I'm willing to disagree with people about the road forward and how to win the war. But uh, in most of these discussions, I can say all of my discussions with government officials and military two, three, four-star generals have always resulted in the fact that the, the realization that these people have no idea what Islam teaches and what their doctrine requires. And so me disagreeing with them is not a reason. Uh, them disagreeing with what I'm saying is not reasonable. They're, they simply are wrong because they don't have an understanding of what the, the ground truth is. So Saudi Arabia is very problematic. Turkey is reestablishing the Ottoman Empire as we speak. And I believe there is a high probability uh, that uh, the coordination here with what's been going on across the board is actually happening. And I think we need to be aware that when these actions are taken by Iran uh, and we respond, we're responding in a way that actually aids the establishment, the reestablishment of the caliphate. And Turkey is going to be the center of the caliphate and uh, very high likelihood that President Erdogan will be the new caliph when the caliphate is uh, is reestablished, which will be in the near future. That's a scary thought that he would be in charge. Well, absolutely. But that's, uh, you know, they're already in the, in the Islamic world calling him Sultan Erdogan. So I think that's, that's a, we need to recognize that, that that is the truth. That is where this is headed. And it is a global effort, a unified effort. And uh, for those people who end up listening to this and they say, well, you know, they're not, Saudi Arabia is not unified with Iran and all that. They are all 
unified. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Muslim Brotherhood, Tabliki Jamaat, the other nation states, they are united in the singular objective. Now, are they fighting over who's going to be in charge? Absolutely. Are they fighting over the way it gets done? Absolutely. Does Saudi Arabia want to see Iran destroyed? Absolutely. Does Iran want to see Saudi Arabia destroyed? Absolutely. But are they all unified that Islam requires them to establish an Islamic state under Sharia? And you must wage jihad when you have the ability and the material resources to do so? Yes. And that, that therein lies the problem. Well, therein lies a multitude of problems that I don't see us overcoming. So back in, into the second level of what I was going to ask you, besides Russia's future problems in dealing with these people as allies, would be the coexistence. It, it, it looks like war is inevitable. Well, uh, war is already here. We've been at war since 1979. Uh, and, I, and I would say that I, I wrote an article that we published Monday night um, on our website, understandingthethreat.com, on the, the blog section, and we put it out on our newsletter. The um, Iran has been at war with us. The Muslim world uh, certainly took a whole new step on September 11th. Um, but what they did, again, keeping in mind that they intend to win the war by controlling the message they intend to win the war in the, if I can use military language, in the information battle space. And I would say they have 100% dominance in the information battle space. And they control the message in our local schools, with our school boards, with our city councils, with our chambers of commerce, in our mayor's offices, with the, the local and state police, with the FBI, DHS, CIA, national security staffs, they control the message. And what's the message we've heard since 9-11 from Republican and Democrats alike is that ISIS and Al-Qaeda, don't they're, they're a perversion of Islam. They perverted it. That no one would kill innocent people for no reason. Well, Islam commands it, and they don't consider them innocent. They consider them infidels, kafir, uh, and Islam requires war against non-Muslims. They've been at war with us since 622 AD. I did a video. You can go to YouTube, go to uh, type in "Understand the Threat," click on our channel, and watch the 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 video continuum of jihad from 622 to January of 2020. There has been an unending global jihad. Now, it sometimes it's slowed, other times it's waned. But it has been non-stop. And the historical examples are there from the 7th century to today. So we're, we're in a war. I think the only people that don't realize it are the Western countries that we're in a war at right now. In, in the 1600s, the 1400s, we knew we were at war and we fought uh, military armies against the armies of Muhammad. And uh, I think it's important to remember that. And one last little tidbit to throw in since we're talking history. In uh, 1786, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who were ambassadors for the United States to France and England, respectively, met with the ambassador from Tripoli, Libya, today's modern-day Libya, 
uh, to the United Kingdom, to Britain. And they asked him, why are you attacking U.S. ships, civilian ships in international waters and kidnapping our people? And his response was that it is a command from their God to wage war against the non-Muslims to establish Islam in the world. And that Muslims who die in battle certainly go to paradise. Well, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams put this in a letter to the Continental Congress, which remains today in the Library of Congress. And they explained his response. They repeated his response. Well, interestingly, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, because of this, obtained Qurans. And the first, because they wanted to know the enemy, the first Quran ever translated was in 1645 in London. Thomas Jefferson had that Quran. And the first page, and I'm, I'll paraphrase it, says, to the Christian reader. And it essentially says that we have translated this Quran so you may know your enemies and defeat them on the field of battle. That's how we used to understand Islam, when we had rational minds and we could see it for what it is. Today, because they control the narrative, they control the message, our leaders believe this is the prevailing narrative in the government. There are many different versions of Islam, so we get good Muslims to help us with bad Muslims. And here we are 19 years later, after 9-11, Saudi Arabia gotten off scot-free. We lost in Syria, lost in Iraq, lost in Afghanistan, despite the fact our military is performing incredibly well and crushing the enemy on the battlefield. We're still losing. And why is that? Because the enemies, the enemy wearing a suit is advising all levels of our government. And we keep repeating this nonsense. Uh, we, our leaders have literally been rendered witless because we've been taking advice for 19 years by our enemies who just happen to wear suits, tell us they like us, and then proceed to lead us astray. That's why we're losing. And we will lose if we actually don't turn the boat around hard. We, uh, here at the Common Central, we wrote an article several years ago that decried the fact that Obama had appointed people with Muslim Brotherhood affiliations into key DHS positions. Were you aware of that? Sure of course. Were. Yes. What was your reaction to that? Uh, well, under the Obama administration, uh, uh, no, no surprise. Uh, it was more disconcerting that, uh, um, you know, we saw that under the Bush administration and we still have uh, that problem under the uh, Trump administration. I mean, Vice President Pence brought Osama Jamal, the number two guy of the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood, who's the executive director of the U.S. Council of Muslim Organizations, into the White House in uh, October uh, on a faith and security summit. So we are still allowing, giving these guys access to the highest levels uh, of our system. Mm-hmm. No, I, I hear exactly what you're saying there, and I went off on this. Now, a short time later, I spoke with Cynthia McKinney, former congresswoman, and she had the same concerns. Alan West, former congressman, said the same thing. And then, I don't know if you're familiar with Trevor Loudon's work, Enemies Within. 
he researched and found 80 members of the Democratic Party, uh, this is about four years ago, had uh, affiliations with front groups or direct affiliations with the Muslim Brotherhood and the American Communist Party. Do you take the same position that we tend to here at the Common Sense Show, that the betrayal of this country from within our government has been aided and abetted by key members of the Democratic Party more than the other side? Uh, yes, I would, I would uh, to be more clear, first of all, uh, Trevor Loudon is a colleague and a friend, and his work, uh, for your listeners, I would just encourage folks to uh, look him up and go to his website. I think it's trevorloudon.com, yes. and he's got the New Zeal blog, but trevorloudon.com is, uh, is his website. He is a tremendous resource, and if you look at the 50 most easily identifiable Marxists in Congress, which he put together a package uh, on, uh, on there on his website, 50 out of 50 are Democrats. You have a Democrat party now that openly calls for taking Americans' weapons, killing babies after they're born, uh, is advocating communism and socialism. You have uh, people running for office who are Democrats, who are school-trained Marxist, communist, Maoists uh, that have been uh, inside the government at senior positions. Uh, you've got many people, like the former DHS uh, Secretary Jay Johnson, like Valerie Jarrett, like Eric Holder, former Attorney General. These people are red diaper babies, and for people unfamiliar, these are people whose parents were members of the Communist Party in the United States. These people had no business being inside the U.S. government. Uh, but this is where we are today. And it's very important that people understand uh, that the, the Marxist Party of the United States, uh, also known as the Democrats, and by the way, there's a reason the Communist Party doesn't run candidates anymore for president. And uh, they're on record. The leader of the U.S. Communist Party uh, said, we don't need to run anymore because we got the Democrat Party. Exactly. So that's, that's where we are. So yes, in that sense, I would, would agree with your assessment. Well, let me take it one step farther afield. And if you're not comfortable or don't know, that's okay. Because I, I see this as being related to your overall theme. Um, I've been doing some research. And of course, everyone knows about the involvement with uh, key Democratic family members and Democrats themselves in Ukraine. And I've been linking it now into money laundering from arms shipments. Is there any evidence you're aware of that some of this ends up going to, I know it goes to Sudan. Have you found any evidence that this goes, this support from the Democrats would extend into Iran? I do not know that. I do know that uh, the uh, this thing goes deep. Uh, and when I say this thing, let me be clear. The, the Democrat leadership, uh, specifically Mrs. Clinton, uh, Mr. Clinton, Mr. Obama, John Brennan, James Clapper, th those people specifically, uh, their hands are very dirty. Uh, I was just sharing on another interview earlier today uh, that I'm, uh, I think this is a very important point. Uh, it was in, this is, goes to what you're asking about. The question I was asked is, why haven't we designated the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization Bingo. since that is that house bill has already been sitting around for a year or more and my response was well there was a major we have 
understanding the threat, we laid out the, uh, we kind of walked through why that hasn't happened. It was a Muslim Brotherhood joint operation and Mrs. Clinton is up to her eyeballs in it. And I said, you know, I, I, we don't, we didn't have time to go through all the details, but I said, here's one detail that will at least should blow you off your seat. The guy who was the director of the Clinton Foundation in Egypt is named Gahad El Hassad, and he was also the, uh, and still is, uh, the director of the International Muslim Brotherhood, and he's in prison right now. So think about that. The guy running the Clinton Foundation in Egypt was the spokesman for the International Muslim Brotherhood, who's now in prison. Mm-hmm. That. That if that alone doesn't make the hairs on the back of your head stand up as to how deep this stuff goes, when the whole—I mean, we can go in whatever direction you want to go. Oh, but I'll throw you're, this. You're hitting home runs here, John. You I'll, really are. I'll, okay. So <laughs> um, let me. But how about Malik Obama? Before we leave the Muslim Brotherhood, half brother of the president, and, and Obama never disavowed his brother's activities as the chief arms procurer and chief finance agent for the agency. Right. Well, you're you're talking about a man, Mr. Obama, who unlawfully gave billions of dollars to the number one state sponsor of terrorism on the planet in violation of U.S. law and U.S. sanctions. So how do you do that? Uh, That right there uh, says everything we need to know. But this is uh, this is a guy who studied Alinsky and taught Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, a book that literally is a playbook for Marxist revolutionary, uh, Marxist revolution, and the book is dedicated to Lucifer, Satan. So I don't know what else you need to know about uh, the, the players that you're talking about here. Uh, this is just, the deeper you go and you look at this, it's, it gets worse and worse. And here's the thing uh, that I think is important, because I think you're nailing a bunch of really important points, and I appreciate it, is that the people at the national level in the Democrat leadership who are just jumping on board this train, it doesn't matter if they don't know where the train's going, although I believe they do. Uh, The Nancy Pelosi's and the Joe Biden's can't say, well, I'm not a Marxist. Well, pal, you're on the train and you're shoveling coal into the furnace that's fueling this thing. So at the end of the day, guilty. Guilty as charged, no question. Well, how does this relate to what you're writing about in your latest book, Islam's Deception, The Truth About Sharia? Uh, Well, this all ties in in two ways. Number one... (laughs) Uh, 100% of the Islamic enemy, whether you're talking about the 9-11 hijackers or the Iranians in 1979 that declared war on the United States and Israel openly, a global jihad, uh, or we're talking about the Boston Marathon bombers, or we're talking about the nation states of Iran and Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Turkey, or we're talking about the Muslim Brotherhood's own bylaws. They universally say that we are Muslims seeking to establish Islamic State under Sharia, and we are waging jihad, warfare against non-Muslims, to do so, which requires a professional analysis of the threat to begin with, 
Sharia. And I can tell you, when I was recruited out of the FBI in 2008, at the end of 2008, one of the uh, what they had me do is begin briefing senior leaders inside the government, uh, members of Congress, uh, chairman of the Intelligence Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, former FBI, CIA, and Defense Intelligence Agency directors, uh, three and four star generals and admirals, and I never briefed anyone that had uh, could talk about Sharia even for 10 seconds. It was appalling. And I, I got to tell you, you know, I got out of the Marine Corps as a captain. Uh, my time in the FBI, bef- bef- besides a few months as a supervisor at headquarters, I was a street agent working these cases at the ground level and coordinating cases uh, at, at that level. Um, I was shocked that these men, and many of them are, were, were good men, but they had no understanding of Sharia. And that gets back to the point I made earlier. This is a war to control the narrative. And everything those directors or generals or chairman of committees knew about Islam came directly from people who were intentionally deceiving them. And that's how this works. Does that make sense? And I think once you understand that, the book I wrote, Islam's Deception, The Truth About Sharia, is if you go and look at what they're teaching 10-year-olds in U.S. Islamic schools, it's consistent with authoritative Islamic law books that you can buy in mosques all over the U.S., Canada, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, wherever, and it's what Islam teaches. Yet, the message that Islamic leaders give U.S. leaders is exactly opposite from what they teach 10-year-old Muslims in U.S. Islamic schools. Yeah, I'm well aware of that, but it even extends further into schools, as I've discovered. I have a background. I was a high school teacher, a college professor, a college basketball coach, so I know the education system pretty well, and I still have my finger in it uh, with my contacts. And I'll just give you a couple of examples, John, and, and it goes even beyond the Islamic schools where you might expect to find this, but you shouldn't go to Rocky Mountain High School in Fort Collins, Colorado, and have a meeting of faculty and staff, and they're made to cite Islamic prayer. And then Air Academy High School in Colorado Springs, basically the same thing was happening. Um, That has no place in our education system. Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, I agree with you. That that absolutely has no business. When you look at Sharia and how barbaric it is, it is absolutely barbaric. And the fact that we have um, our leaders... Um, that's gone. It's it's gone now through so many different uh, iterations, but our leaders um, defending Islam to include a, a strong percentage of Christian pastors in the United States uh, and Jewish leaders. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, not to mention uh, what you're talking about about in the at the you know local elementary school level. How concerned were you when you found out that? Uh... Brennan, and then uh, later um, uh, General Ham, the former commander of AFRICOM, uh, that they converted to Islam? Um, well, I would say uh, I'm the one that broke the story on John Brennan. Uh, I have sources that served in Saudi Arabia when John Brennan was the station chief of the CIA, and I broke that story, and I weathered a pretty hellacious storm uh, of criticism 
for bringing it up. It's crackpot, blah, blah, blah. It was true because I had people that I knew, I know and trust um, that had direct access that he said the Shahada in front of Saudi government officials in Saudi Arabia, including, by the way, Saudi intelligence, the Mubath, while he served as the CIA director, or excuse me, the station chief in Saudi Arabia. Um, that's appalling uh, for a number of reasons. Um, so uh, the good news was uh, Brad Johnson, the former station chief, another former station chief of the agency, when he retired, came out and publicly confirmed that John Brennan did convert, and it was widely known inside the agency that that had happened. It wasn't just some sidebar thing. So, yeah, I, I'm very concerned about these things, but it goes to the weakness of character. You know, look, do I think John Brennan is a an active, uh, you know, Sharia adherent Muslim? I have no idea. I think if you listen to John Brennan speak, he is a man without an anchor. He is like a balsa wood ship floating on the ocean going wherever it leads him. He has no anchor in his life, but he clearly is an anti-American uh a co-conspirator with those conspiring to overthrow the government and that make that's a violation of the law and uh, he should be charged and and he did it while he was in an official position which is treason and he should be charged with that and 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 uh, punished for it i actually wrote an article where i laid out james comey's interview with the new york times and it goes into brennan too and they were talking about trump's leadership and he was saying, I'll do anything to get Trump removed from office. That was the theme of the New York Times interview with James Comey. And on his living room floor, in the capture picture for the article, he has Dealey Plaza in Star Wars toys. And there's no misunderstanding. I'd show this to people, go, what is this? Dealey Plaza. And then in the same time frame, you had uh, Brennan going on uh, CNN, uh, no, C-SPAN 2 with um, uh, McFarlane. And they were actively talking about interagency personnel that were going to take the president out. How do these people avoid being arrested when they do this so publicly? Well, uh, because we are in the middle of a, a coup, an ongoing coup, by the way. The coup has not stopped. Uh, this is not polit political maneuvering. This is a coup against the president of the United States. Uh, that's why I uh, often tell people we are in some real grave times and the first thing you need to do is recognize it and believe what your eyes are seeing and stop trying to uh, mentally push it back down uh, because we need people to see it, to know it, and take action. And the good news is my organization, Understand the Threat, is the only organization giving people tools, empowering citizens to actually identify these Marxist and jihadi networks at the local level and dismantle them. Uh, and that's what we do. And uh, we need to rapidly increase the work we're doing. Uh, we need to get as many Americans on board as quickly as possible, because I think um, things are going to go downhill quickly and prior to the election, not after the next election. We are definitely going to link to your organization, Understanding the Threat. How do people get a copy of your book? It sounds like a good starting point for people who are just learning about this. Uh, it absolutely is. So here's what I recommend. If there's one thing I recommend everyone listening do is go to understandingthethreat.com 
and on the homepage, subscribe to the newsletter. Now, that may sound like, well, that's pretty innocuous. That doesn't make me empowered. It certainly will, because then you have access to our radio show, our TV show, our uh, twice weekly, we do interactive presentations uh, online. It'll give you access to all of our free resources, our books, our DVDs, our online streaming stuff that we have for sale, as well as our other products, uh, the, the newsletter itself, uh, and, and most importantly, I believe, is the training. Uh, we have a two-day training for civilians where we actually come in, we give you the information, we help you organize and give you strategies for your local area. We have a three-day program for law enforcement, first responders, National Guard, and we have an eight-day program. Excuse me, we have an eight-day program uh, that is called Train the Trainer, where, where we train people to teach about the material you and I are talking about in order to energize the community to then get involved. And that, I think, is, is incredibly important. So those are the things I would encourage people to do. And I would assume your book is also available on Amazon? It is. It's available on Amazon.com uh, as well as our website. That's right. Well, we're going to be frequent visitors up to your site. This has been uh, one of the more, um, shall we say, slap-in-the-face interviews I've done for a while. And I know my audience is going to walk away saying I need more. So... To the audience, again, John's new book is Islam's Deception, The Truth About Sharia. And, uh, John, I want to thank you for being with us for this most informative interview. And thank you for your service to your country. Thank you very much for saying so. And I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back after a word from these sponsors. <laughs> 